turn to Romans chapter 2. We're journeying together through Paul's letter to the Romans, perhaps the greatest exposition of the gospel in all the Bible. I've called it the Grand Canyon of gospel exposition, which is why you see a picture of the Grand Canyon behind me. And after announcing the theme of this letter, the glorious gospel of Christ in which the righteousness of God is revealed and by which sinners are saved, he has turned the corner and been speaking at length, and we've covered this for several weeks now, of God's wrath and of human sin and unrighteousness. And Paul is systematically and methodically removing every excuse that human beings might come up with to try to avoid the wrath of God or the judgment of God that's coming. We have just a couple of weeks left in this dark news, so there, there's hope, there's light at the end of this tunnel. We'll, uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll finish chapter 2 today. We're going to do verses 12 all the way through 29 today. Uh, next week, we're going to take a hiatus from Romans. Jason Brown will preach to us next Sunday. And then when we return to Romans the following week, we've got chapter 3, verses 1 through 20, and that's where this sort of the deep dive into the bad news turns a corner. And, and comes to an end. And so, uh, just two more sermons about bad news before we get to the really glorious parts of, uh, of the book of Romans. So, bear with me. But he's been speaking of the wrath of God that's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, in their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And they've made idolatrous exchanges. They take what they know of God intuitively by what he's created and revealed of himself in nature and in their own conscience and turned it on its head and chosen the creature rather than the creator. And we read about how that expressed itself in the, la the latter half of chapter 1. Then he began to speak of this coming, this future judgment, this final judgment that all people will face. He started off speaking to perhaps a self-righteous moralist in verses 1 through 5, the one who would be inclined to look at the sins of the world around and go, well, I'm not like that. At least I'm doing better than those guys, so maybe I'm going to make it out. Paul says, not so fast. You who condemn others, you condemn yourself because you are guilty of the very same things. And then in verses 6 through 11 that we looked at last week, we spoke of the principle of God's judgment of all people and on that final day, the day of wrath, namely that he will judge people according to their works. That's the principle by which God will judge people according to their works. Those who are doing good and persevere in righteousness will receive eternal life, and those who obey unrighteousness and do evil will receive wrath and fury. And I suggested to you there that I think Paul intends us to understand there will be no one who stands before the judgment of God with perfect righteousness to present himself before him and say, look, I have kept all your laws. We can't do that. And so indeed, there will be none righteous who stand in the judgment unless God intervenes in some way. 
So he continues speaking about the nature of God's judgment. And what he does in verses 12 through 29 is he gives us, he sort of expands on the principle by which God will judge people and then applies that principle to two distinct groups of people. Indeed, all people who are comprised of those two groups. So we have a judgment principle and then the application of these two uh, of that principle to these two groups. And so here, here's the principle, and we see it in verse 12 and 13. You will be judged by the light you have. You will be judged by the light that you have. I'm going to read verses 12 and 13. For all have sinned without the law, excuse me, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So back in verse 6, he told us that God will judge each person according to his works. And then in verse 11, he said that God shows no partiality or favoritism. God does not grade on a curve. He does not prefer one group of people over another or one kind of people over another. He will judge fairly, justly, righteously according to each one's works, for he shows no partiality. And so that verse 12 begins with the word for tells us that he is expanding that principle. God will judge each one according to his works, He shows no partiality. And here's what he means by that. All who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by that law. And so we get a hint of the two different groups of people that he's going to speak to in a more expanded way in the coming verses. Those who have not had access to the law, and this is the first time he uses the word law in Romans and he uses it all over the place after this, and he uses it in a variety of ways, usually probably most commonly referring to the Mosaic law, all that was contained therein, summarized in the Ten Commandments. That's usually what he has in mind. Sometimes he seems to refer to all of the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets, but at any rate, he's speaking of the commands of God that he has revealed to his people, all right? So he speaks here of the law, these commands of God that he has revealed. And there's a group of people who have not had that access, who have not had God's law, God's word. And then there's a group of people who do have the law, who have had the law, the word of God. And they will be judged according to what they have. So he doesn't say if you haven't had access to the law, you will be judged by that law. Because that would be unfair, right? That would be unjust. Why would I be judged on the basis of a law that I didn't know about. So he says, I, those people will be judged in a slightly different way based on the light that they have. So the principle by which Jews and Gentiles alike will be justified, as he says there in verse 13, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And that word justified means to be declared righteous. It's the same root word as righteousness, or those who are righteous before God, or those who will be justified. That is declared righteous. So, 
this one group of people that Gentiles don't have, haven't had historically access to the word of God, the law of God, not in the same sense, right? In Paul's audience here, remember he's writing to a church that is comprised of both Jewish and Gentile Christians, although the Jews were expelled for a season for five or six years, we think, and now they've begun to return and they've returned to a very Gentile church. And so they're working on how to kind of integrate their, their lives together and the various differences that they have uh, in how they approach the gospel. And so Gentiles sin without the law, that is, without having had access to the law, and so they'll be judged without reference to it. God says, okay, well, if you claim, well, I didn't have the law, I didn't have the commands of God, I didn't have the word of God, so I can't be judged on that basis, he says, okay, then I'll judge you on, on the basis of what light you do have. What is it that you know? What is it that has been revealed to you? And we'll hold you accountable to that. And Jews, of course, were the covenant people of God uh, under the Mosaic Covenant or the Abrahamic Covenant. And so they, they had been given all of these blessings. And he'll expand more on some of those blessings in the coming verses, even into chapter 3. And so they have had this special place as the people of God. And so they had the prophets coming to them and the word of God given to them. And so they have this incredible access to the oracles of God, the commands of God. And so since they are a people under the law, they will be judged by that law because that's the light that they've been given, right? So you will be judged by the light that you have. It's sort of the principle of judgment that we see in verses 12 and 13. Now, most commentators think that Paul had Gentiles broadly in mind in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, the idolatrous exchanges that people made and suppressing the truth and all of that. Uh, and then, then he has Jews in mind, beginning with the self-righteous moralist in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And that might be broadly correct, uh, even though we need not press it too far. Right, as though the charges of idolatry only apply to Gentiles and the self-righteous moralists who judge others are only Jews. Right? I mean, there's definitely crossover and, and bleed over between those two categories. But at any rate, Paul gets explicit here in distinguishing the, these two groups and applying the impartial judgment of God on the basis of the light they've been given to each one, first to the Gentiles, and then in a much more expanded way, he speaks to the Jews. So the principle of judgment then is you will be judged by the light that you have. So now he's going to address each of these groups. Okay, Gentiles, let's talk to you. Let's talk about the people who are not in the Jewish family, who have not had access to all of these oracles and the written tradition and the laws of God handed down. Let's talk to you first. And so in verses 14 through 16, he speaks directly to this group. I'm going to read those verses for you now, starting in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Summary of those few verses is this. Gentiles' good works prove that they intuitively know the law 
and are thereby accountable to it. So when he says in verse 14, when Gentiles by nature do what the law requires, he's not saying here, of course, that Gentiles don't sin. He's only saying that Gentiles don't only sin, right? There are times that even fallen sinners do what's right. The old saying, even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? So when Gentiles by nature do what the law requires, this shows us that there are elements of goodness still present within fallen human beings. I think it's good to be reminded that human beings are made in the image of God. And though the fall has corrupted that image, muted that image, distorted that image, it has not wiped it out altogether. So even sinners, fallen people, are still bearers of the divine image. And that's what we see when we see people who are not regenerate, people who are not uh, who have not been saved, who are not following God or his word, nevertheless do what is right. You're seeing the image of God shine forth in those broken vessels. So every part of mankind has been affected and stained by original sin, but there is still an internal witness that aligns with God's law. And at times even those without the law do what is right in God's sight. And when that happens, when the Gentiles, those who have not had access to the word of God, the law of God, the commands of God, do what the law requires, that is when their actions line up incidentally with what God's law commands, they are actually proving that they intuitively know something of the law of God. Not the law, capital L, like the Mosaic law or the Ten Commandments necessarily, but the moral laws that God has placed into effect for human beings is on the heart of every person. He tells us there in verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. People intuitively know something about what's right. And what's wrong what's good and what's evil and when they do that they show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and then he speaks of course to the the reality of the the fallenness of human beings yet image bearers in their conflicting thoughts alternately accuse or excuse them right so we're not always right about this fallen people are not always exactly correct about what's right and what's wrong it can be distorted in fact it often is distorted and we've seen that very clearly in chapter 1 verses 18 through 32 so they're not always right and the the thoughts the internal thoughts of people are conflicting sometimes i excuse myself sometimes i accuse my, my conscience accuses me I think that that was the wrong thing to do. And so we may be intuitively aware of this. And in that way, they become, he says, a law to themselves. When Gentiles, verse 14, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. 
So in other words, they won't be judged. Gentiles who haven't had the law given to them won't be judged on the basis of the law. Like no one's going to quote Deuteronomy to them and go, why didn't you obey that? Well, I didn't have that. I didn't hear that. I didn't know that. But God's going to be able to say, but let's take a look at what was on your heart. Let's take a look at the code that I put there. Let's take a look at the image of God that was implanted on your soul and how that still reflects itself even though muted and distorted. And let's talk about your guilt. So it's no accident that he begins this by saying that those... uh, excuse me, back in verse 12, that all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. That will be the end of this. Unless God does something, unless God intervenes in some way, those who have not had the law will be judged by the light they do have, namely the internal witness of their conscience and the law of God that's been imprinted on their hearts. And the result will be that they will perish. That is, they will be finally condemned. That's what that means. Friends, we ought to heed the voice of conscience, an undervalued friend. It is a gift from God implanted in the souls of men, and it is there to guide us toward righteousness. We discount or ignore our conscience to our own peril. And the more we ignore it, the easier it becomes to ignore it the next time. Our consciences become seared. We do well to pay attention to this God-given messenger in each of our hearts to protect us from what is evil and to guide us toward what is good. So those who have not had access to the law, those who have not had access to the law will nevertheless find themselves condemned when they stand before God because their lack of awareness of the law will not excuse them. In fact, I meant to say this earlier, but I would summarize that section this way. A lack of religious knowledge won't excuse you. When it comes to that day of judgment and standing before this holy God, a lack of religious knowledge won't excuse you. You're not going to make it out because... Of ignorance. Well, sorry, I just didn't know. Can I get a lighter sentence, please? That's not how this works. It doesn't matter how much religious knowledge or opportunity you had. You had the light that God had given you in the image of God implanted on your soul, in the law of God written on your heart, in the conscience that he's put within you to guide you to right and wrong, and you have sinned against the light that you were given. So, A lack of religious knowledge will not excuse you. By the way, I do think that this section here uh, kind of answers the perennial question, what about someone who never hears the gospel? Right? That's a pretty common question to ask. Well, if, if people are only saved by hearing and responding with faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ, what about people who never had a chance to hear it? Aren't there people who are then going to be unjustly condemned because they didn't have access to the gospel? I think the answer that Paul gives to that question is every human being has been given the light of creation and the light of conscience, an external witness and an internal witness 
to God's existence and presence and power and to our accountability, uh, our accountability to him and have still chosen idolatry and rebellion. So I think that is the way that, that this passage answers that question. And just one quick word of application here. Surely this ought to fuel the church's mission to the nations. We must get the good news of Jesus Christ to as many people and nations as we possibly can, trusting that God will gather his people as the gospel goes forward. Because there is enough information, if you will, available in creation and in the human conscience to condemn a person. But there's not enough to save them. So they must hear and receive the gospel and receive it with faith. So Romans 10 tells us, a very famous passage. So a lack of religious knowledge will not excuse you. The next uh, section of this and the longer portion of this passage, verses 17 through 29, the message is this. Abundant religious knowledge won't save you. If a lack of religious knowledge won't excuse you, then an abundance of religious knowledge won't save you. In other words, religious knowledge or opportunity is not the deciding factor here. Well, I didn't have much religious knowledge. Well, let's talk about the light that you did have and how you sinned against that light. And when we're talking now to the Jewish audience here that Paul is addressing in the rest of this chapter, they clearly had an abundance of religious knowledge and opportunity. They were the, covenant, the chosen covenant people of God. They had the prophets and the law given to them and the presence of God. They had all of these things, right? Abundant religious knowledge, but they are not saved on the basis of that religious knowledge. He, does, he breaks this down into two parts, if you will. So the first part is this, verses 17 through 24. It's the danger of profession without practice. Profession without practice. Let's read those verses together, verses 17 through 24. But if you call yourself a Jew... And rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is the danger of profession without practice. Paul engages here in what's called diatribe. That is, he identifies a, a sort of a, a rhetorical opponent. And he engages in a dialogue with an imagined religious Jew. And so all these things within these verses, uh, are you a teacher, do you rely on the, God, the law, are all in the singular as though he's speaking to one representative person. He doesn't have a real person in mind here. He's speaking to a kind of a rhetorical dialogue partner. You, a Jew, rely on the law, boasting God, all these things, right? 
And so he, he speaks to this rhetorical dialogue partner, of course, standing in for the group as a whole. And in verses, verses 17 through 20, the, the, his rhetorical dialogue partner touts his impressive religious resume. And it is impressive. Look at everything there. You rely on the law. You boast in God. You know his will and approve what is excellent. You're instructed from the law. You're a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. This is an impressive religious resume, isn't it? It's a bit like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That was the way that that parable was introduced. And then he tells the story of a Pharisee and a tax collector who draw near to the temple for worship. And the Pharisee is proud and boasts of all these great things that he's done. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. But I give a tenth of all that I have, and I give to the poor, and I keep your law, right? But then it's the tax collector who is hated and despised by his culture, seen as an enemy of the people of God. The tax collector approaches humbly, and his head is bowed, and he beats his breast in repentance, and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says to this self-righteous audience who believes that they are righteous, he tells them the one who went home justified, that is declared righteous with God, is not the Pharisee with the impressive resume, but the tax collector who knows he's broken and approaches for mercy with humility, which is an absolutely scandalous message to that audience. But that's much what Paul is doing here. It's very reminiscent of the Lord's teaching himself. So the Jews boast of all these rich blessings that they have as members of the covenant community. You have the law of God and the presence of God, and you know what's good and right, and, and you're instructed by the word of God himself. And you yourselves are convinced, right, that you are a blind to the guide, a teacher of children. I have the truth. I know what people need. I am guiding others and helping them in their time of need. This is the spiritual resume of this religious Jew that Paul is dialoguing with here. And so he touts his impressive religious resume, but then in verses 21 through 24, Paul calls him out as a hypocrite who fails to practice what he preaches. They boast in God's law, but they break it with impunity. He says, you teach others, but you don't teach yourself. In other words, the things that you're saying that others ought to be doing, you're not applying to your own life. You preach against stealing, but you steal. You warn against adultery, but you commit adultery. You abhor idols, but you rob temples. That's an interesting little detail. Commentators are divided on what exactly it could mean. It might mean that these people are stealing rich articles from pagan temples in order to sell them for a profit. So it could be that they're robbing pagan temples, which of course would tie into idolatry very literally. It could be that they're failing to pay the temple tax or the synagogue tax, right? And so 
they're in a sense robbing from the temple of God by not giving what they're supposed to give. It could be kind of metaphorical, like they're stealing glory from God in their self-righteousness. It's not totally clear exactly what he has in mind here, but nevertheless, the hypocrisy is obvious. You preach against and rant against these people doing these horrible things, but you are doing them all the while. And because of that hypocrisy, because of that not practicing what you're preaching, the name of God is dishonored. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And that could be an echo of a number of places in the Old Testament. One place that I pinpointed is Ezekiel chapter 36, where God rebukes Israel in that he has scattered them to the nations in exile as judgment for their own rebellion and disobedience to him. And when they arrive among these pagan nations, they give God a bad name because of their hypocrisy. And so Ezekiel 36 verse 20 says, when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And that the people said of them, these are the people of Yahweh, and yet they had to go out of his land. So it's like, I guess God doesn't really take care of his people. And down in verse 23, he says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. So God takes this indictment against Israel in exile and spread among the nations, dishonoring God's name where they went, and he applies it here to the religious, observant Jews in his audience. You say that you are all about the law of God and that you rely on it and you know it and you teach others and you guide others and you instruct children, but you yourselves are disobeying the word of God and thereby dishonoring God himself. You are profaning the name of God among the nations. I think it's important for us to see the close connection between the disobeying of God's word and the dishonoring of God's name. He he doesn't say that you've dishonored God by saying bad things about God. It's not like they've gone around telling lies. It's not like they've gone around saying, God is not real, God is not holy, God doesn't care, God can't help you. They're not saying false things about God. In fact, they're all the while touting great doctrine. They're pointing to the word of God, the law of God, and instructing others. This is who God is. So the problem is not what they're saying. It's what they're doing, or maybe even what they're not doing. They're professing the word of God, but they're not obeying the word of God. They're professing to know God and belong to him, but they're not practicing what they preach. And in that failure to practice what they preach, they are dishonoring God's name. And that's true of us. That's a danger for us who know God and who point to his word and speak of him to others. And perhaps our Facebook and Instagram posts are lots of Bible verses and very beautiful looking, good sounding things and right doctrine. But the way that people see us live is out of step with what we say and what we profess. And when we do that, we profane the name of God by not practicing what we profess. 
This is a danger for religious people. Well, unless you think Paul is being too hard on these guys, man, he's coming down hard on these religious Jews, right? Maybe he's elevating himself above them. I am better than you. Maybe he's guilty of hypocrisy here. It's good to remember that he could well be describing himself prior to his conversion to Christ. Paul speaks elsewhere of his pedigree as a Pharisee, one who was so devoted to self-righteous law-keeping that he was hunting down and arresting Christians because he thought they were that they were dishonoring God, that they were distorting the word of God, even presiding in at least one case over the execution of a Christian leader. And so Paul himself was so deceived at one point that as he was persecuting the church, he thought he was doing the will of God. And so he understands well the predicament of these religious Jews to whom he writes who are convinced of their own righteousness. Is shaking them awake. You will not be saved by your religious pedigree. You will not be saved by your religious observance. So the Jews highly esteem God's law and word, but they reject and violate it in action. And surely there's a word of warning here for church folk like us. A word of warning against religious hypocrisy. Is this how we look at the world around us? Do we scoff at the sins of others while privately harboring sin and unrighteousness in our own lives? Think about our church specifically. Is it possible that we're tempted to think this way about our church? Like we're the, we're the serious church in town. We're the church with good doctrine. We're the church that does the Lord's Supper every week, and the other churches are getting that all wrong. We're the church with an elder-led polity, and whatever it is, fill in the blank. Whatever it is that you're tempted to think, I'm proud of my church because of X, Y, Z. Are we puffing ourselves up with religious knowledge, religious performance, religious pedigree, while we're treating others with contempt? There's a danger here. Not that any of those things are bad things. Those are all good things. But if they become our identity markers, or if they lead us to look down our noses at others who aren't quite as right as we are, then we're people that Paul might say this to. The danger of profession without practice. The second group here, the second part of this section is uh, verses 25 to 29, and it's the danger of ritual without regeneration. Ritual without regeneration. Look at verses 25 to the end of the chapter. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. 
Well, if the first rebuke of the religious hypocrite was that he failed to practice what he preached, then the second rebuke concerns the danger of living a religious life without a new heart. The danger of living a religious life without a new heart. And there's a lot here about circumcision and uncircumcision, and it could be a little bit confusing. All you need to remember for this is that circumcision was the most, uh, sort of had pride of place as the marker of, the symbol of their covenant identity. I belong to God as his covenant people, and the way that I know that is that I received circumcision, right? Obviously, that applies to males specifically. And so circumcision is sort of the poster issue of the identity of the Jewish people as the covenant people of God. And so when he speaks of their circumcision, he's not so much interested in the ritual itself as the, the sense of religious identity that comes along with it. They're boasting in the law, right? Circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, it doesn't really matter what symbol of belonging you have or what religious pedigree you have if you're not keeping the law that it signifies, which in fact is the case with every person to whom he's writing and every person who's ever heard this, uh, the, these verses, right? Nobody has kept the law rightly. And so law-breaking nullifies the benefit of Jewish identity and covenant. The circumcision, the sign of the covenant, becomes uncircumcision. That is, it ceases to mean anything when they break the law, when they break the covenant that it signifies. And then he gives a little hypothetical about a Gentile in verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised, let's say this is an outsider, this is not a Jewish person, right? So if somebody who's not a Jew, not circumcised, keeps the precepts of the law, well, he actually becomes a, a witness against you, the Jew who has circumcision, who has the symbol of the covenant and the identity and the, relig the religious heritage. He actually, in his obedience to the law, becomes a witness against you who have all the religious stuff, who've got all the ritual down, but you're breaking the law. Because that's not the point. The point is not the religious heritage or religious identity. The point is obedience to the word of God. And so if you say, I am one of the circumcised Jews of God, and he says, well, let's look at the laws that you're breaking, what value is that? That's what he's getting at here. And then this is really important in verses 28 and 29. This is what I want to focus on for the last couple of minutes. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Now, obviously, there are people who are Jews outwardly, right, by ethnicity. There are people who are in the lineage of Abraham, physical descendants of Abraham, and therefore they are Jewish people. Obviously, that is true. And circumcision itself is obviously an outward and physical act. He's not negating that. What he's saying is those things are not the point. Those things are symbols of something deeper. Namely, verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly. Okay, there's something internal about what it means to really be among the people of God, right? And circumcision really is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, and not by 
the letter. The true Jew is the one whose heart is circumcised by the Spirit of God, which mere law-keeping can never do. And he's not the first one to, to suggest that circumcision is a matter of the heart. In fact, back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, Moses commanded the people that they must, be, that they must circumcise the foreskin of their heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 portrays the new covenant as a new heart of flesh replacing an old heart of stone. So it's always been a matter of internal reality. It's always been a matter of submission to and worship of God that comes from a renewed heart, not merely an external keeping of the written code. Now, Paul revisits this letter and spirit dichotomy in two other places, one later in Romans, in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, and then again in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. And the point of it is this, life in Christ is empowered not by the rigid following of a written code, but by the indwelling spirit of God. And so he puts a fine point on his diatribe against the self-righteous, law-obsessed religious person. To truly belong to God as one of his people, you need not to conform yourself to the outward rituals and signs of religious identity, but to receive new life, a circumcised heart by the Spirit of God. That is what ultimately matters and where he's going to take us just a little bit later in the book. A lack of religious knowledge will not excuse you on the day of judgment, and an abundance of religious knowledge and even a very impressive religious pedigree will not save you in the day of judgment. The only thing that will save you is if you've been given a new heart, if you've been circumcised in heart, by the Spirit of God, not by the letter of the written law. No one will be justified by works of the law. Robert Yarbrough summarizes this well. Ethnicity, obedience to God's laws, or religious self-confidence are in themselves no protection against the coming judgment. And so I've got to ask you, what are you trusting in? What are you banking on to prepare you for the day of judgment? Is it a religious identity or pedigree? Is it how many generations in your family have served God or been members of churches or pastors? Is it your own record of church attendance and service and giving? Are you trusting in your own religious performance? to save you on the day of judgment. If so, friends, you're on a very thin branch that will not hold you. The only preparation for the day of judgment is a new heart given by the Spirit of God when a sinner repents and trusts in Christ. When a sinner draws near to God in humble, repentant faith and says, Lord, I know I am a sinner. I know that I've broken your law. 
Even if I didn't have all of the access, I'm new to the Bible or whatever, I had the code written on my heart. I had a conscience that you gave me that told me what was right and what is wrong, and I've still sinned. I have sinned against the light that you gave me. So I know I have no reason to stand in your presence. I know I have no claim to be acceptable to you, but Lord, would you please have mercy upon me because I know that there is one righteous man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived obediently in my place and who died for my sin and who rose again from the dead to defeat death and hell forever. So on his account, would you have mercy upon me, a sinner? That's how you prepare for judgment. That's the only thing that will stand on the day of wrath. So brothers and sisters, let's bow ourselves beneath the mighty hand of God. Humble ourselves. Let's plead with him for mercy in Christ. And let's ask him for this new heart. That we might not just go about the religious motions without the newness of life that only Christ by his spirit provides. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this word. We praise you for the warnings that you give us of judgment to come. The honesty with which you speak to us about our own condition, the predicament that we are in because of our sin and your holiness. And we praise you for your provision for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we fall upon your mercy today. May every heart in this room be trusting not in their own religious performance or pedigree, but in Jesus Christ in their place. Replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, O Lord, that we might live not by the letter of the law, but by the Spirit of God who lives within us. For the glory of Christ, the building of your people, we pray.